0: Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Rain, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life, who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance, and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned, we're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another episode here at Let Freedom Rain podcast. Our guest this week is Dana Lovell. She runs Running T Horsemanship out of Southeast Idaho. Now as with most conversations on this podcast, we talk about the horse and how they've impacted an individual's life, but Dana's story is special. Dana goes into some pretty intimate detail about her son's diagnosis with autism spectrum disorder. Now at first this seems like an insurmountable challenge, but with Dana's fortitude and strength as a mother, she sought the proper education and formulated a resourceful plan to help her son's growth and development. In turn, many of the lessons learned reflect in our horsemanship program today. Now, as many of you listen to this episode, I think you can agree with me. My respect and admiration for Dana is tremendous. She's an extremely intelligent, kind, and thoughtful horsewoman. Now, should you feel the content of this episode is valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is Dana Lovell. Dana, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. I just want to take a second early on in this conversation to thank you on behalf of everybody from Let Freedom Rain podcast. I know everybody's got a terribly busy schedule. Everybody's getting ready for winter, but we do enjoy our time with our guests, and we thank you very, very much for setting some time aside for us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Looking forward to sharing.
0: So what's new around the barn for you?
1: Prepping for Winter. Putting the deicers in, getting everybody, uh, getting the setup uh, as convenient as possible, so there's the least amount of uh, hose draining and easy travel via trailer to the indoor arenas locally here to continue to be able to work through the weather. I
0: was going to say, so you have enough indoor facilities around you to to stay busy throughout winter.
1: We do. We have we have a group of us that meet weekly at a, a larger facility just about 15 minutes down the way, and and then I have access to a smaller private indoor about about five minutes away.
0: You run running tea horsemanship there in Idaho. Do you want to give us, we'll get into a lot more detail as a conversation goes through, but do you want to give us a little introduction into your program and, and how it works there?
1: So at running tea horsemanship, I um I, I do a lot of colt starting Has uh, kind of been my, my main gig for the last 10 years. And recently trying to lessen the amount of of colt starting that can get uh, it's a very time-consuming and and potentially rough on the body. Uh, and trying to reach more towards doing clinics and lessons and and horsemanship groups here, uh, I utilize a lot of uh, different types of horsemanship. I'm from a dressage background. I grew up with a German dressage trainer, and then met and married a cowboy and moved out west. So we've collaborated different different disciplines and to create the program that I have now and have a varied toolbox that I use from practical horsemanship to natural horsemanship.
0: So what's interesting with everybody who comes on the show is, you know, we all start out in one place in life and and it seems like we all find our common ground in the horse. Do you mind taking a few minutes to kind of explain your start and how you grew up through life and, and found your way to the horse?
1: Absolutely. So I I have known horses since I could, my first memories, my mom uh, was a horsewoman and ha, had me riding when I was very young and always, always had a horse in my life. And she, regardless of our financial situations or living situations, always made sure that I had horses in my life, whether it was riding lessons or stopping into random people's houses and knocking on their door, asking if we could groom their horses for them. And so there's, that was my uh, my consistent with, we moved a lot when I was younger growing up. And so the horses were always something that was consistent regardless of where we were. And then my mom passed away uh, when I was uh, 15 and she was always my big pusher of the horses. When When people would roll their eyes or say I'd grow out of it. She was the one who, who stood behind me and supported me in it. And so after she passed away, uh, the horses you know, were my solace. It's how I kept myself focused, driven, and at times distracted uh, through growing up, you know, being a, a young woman coming into herself. And I homeschooled growing up and, and did so after my mom passed away and gave me opportunities to travel with different trainers. Uh, Reining trainers and dressage trainers, and rode with all kinds of different people, and had varied experiences doing that. Again, kept me focused, out of trouble for the most part, unless it was horse-related. Throughout the years, just kept on riding, and started my first horse when I was 16, completely by myself. And I remember getting on him in a round pen by myself with nobody around for the first ride, and now realize how incredibly ridiculous that was. Then moved. There's there's a lot of details and that brought me to uh, Pennsylvania, um, but that is where I met my now husband at a facility that I was managing. And he kind of introduced me to Colt starting in the Western world because growing up a dressage rider, I was under the impression that Western was evil, horrible, and nasty. <laughs> and, That's hilarious. And that it was, yeah, it was a big no-no and those big bits and those big spurs. And so I Got to realize that was uh, not necessarily the case. Yeah, definitely
0: <laughs> not the case. However,
1: <laughs> depending on who you know, any tool and any you know, the yeah, wrong hand. Say,
0: there's plenty of people that don't know how to use either.
1: Right, exactly. So I, I was introduced to uh, kind of western riding and really enjoyed working cows. And we moved out here to Idaho. That's kind of where we started our business together. That's how we made an income when we first moved here was starting colts and given lessons. And my husband's a farrier. He shoes horses, has been now for over 20 years.
0: That saves you a little bit of money, huh?
1: It does. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like the saying about the, you know, the plumber, you know, the mechanic's car oh, yeah, or the, the plumber's pipes. It I've got a bag. And
0: yeah. You spend all day doing it. You don't want to come home and do it more.
1: No, exactly. So I, I have resorted at times to tying my horses to his truck. There's always alternatives, I
0: guess. There's always alternatives.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) So in going back through your upbringing, you explained how the horse has kind of always been a part of your life and your mom really, really pushed you to stay with horses, no matter how unstable, whether it was a living condition or moving or whatever in your life, the horses were the stability for you. Correct. Was there a turning point or a significant moment in your upbringing when you knew you had to have the horses? It was more than just stability in your life.
1: Always had that feeling. I, I can remember when I was, well, yes, when I was about seventeen, 18, I was living 17. I was living on Maui, Hawaii, which is where I grew up. And I was working two jobs and supporting myself. I was a waitress uh, and, and a host. and I had bought two horses. I was completely broke, barely could make my rent. and I had these two horses. and I, the only place I could find to board them, was on the other side of the island. Uh, you have to, there's one main road that connects uh, the town Lahaina to Kahului. And that was the only place I could find free boarding. She had this pasture, the woman didn't mind. And I did not have a vehicle. So every day uh, in between my shifts, I would hitchhike to my horses.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: <laughs> and, and and back then hitchhiking was completely, I mean, it was it was what you did. If you didn't have a vehicle, it wasn't unusual to see people on the side of the road. I'd I'd hitchhike with my surfboard and I'd hitchhike. And it was about a 40 minute drive to, and sometimes it took longer and I had to make sure that I gave myself enough time and kept them in my life. Cause it was like breathing. If I took away my horses, I was taking away my air and I felt like I couldn't function without them. And at the time, you know, some thought I was a bit obsessed, uh, unreasonably so, but I, I knew that I had to have them and I was willing to do whatever it took to keep them in my life. Because without them, I wasn't me.
0: That's pretty impressive. I mean, for it's tough enough just to own the horse, period, right? And have a facility that's that's halfway accessible or having the horses on your property and stuff. So for you to be able to hitchhike across Maui... Yeah, (laughs) on your brakes and stuff. I mean, that's, it shows a, a definitely a different level of, of discipline. And, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think most of us that are deeply enthralled with the horse do have some level of obsession to say it modestly, I guess.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's that, that fine line, you know, between obsessed and crazy. And I think we all, those who are dedicated and feel that passion and that need and that drive walk that line all the time.
0: Correct. Correct. And it's,
1: that line creates, I have found, and I'm sure others would, would agree and this would resonate that there's that balance then as you become an adult um, and things aren't nearly as as free-flowing to find that balance between being a husband or wife and a horse trainer or instructor or competitor and a parent and keeping that all balanced so that there is, you know, harmony between the three. Correct. Because I, I know for myself in the last three years, I've really found, found that balance or I've tried to. I don't think I've achieved it yet, but it, it certainly was something that I took into consideration when I realized that my family was starting to resent horses. So the, the people that I loved the most were starting to not love the thing I loved the most.
0: Now let's develop that a little bit because that's a challenge that I see a lot of people run into, right? Is it, we all get into horses kind of, it starts as an interest, right? And then an interest becomes a fascination. Fascination becomes a hobby and then a hobby becomes a lifestyle, right? For some people it grows on to be a, be a profession. Yes. It's hard for people, A, not understanding the horse to either keep up with that pace or even if they do understand that horse, they might not enjoy or love the horse to that level. So if you don't mind sharing kind of the the struggles that you found in in finding that balance, to where you're not burning out everybody else in your family yet you can still be in, involved in horses.
1: Yeah. So, for instance, a couple years ago, I I was training all the time. I was so obsessed and folk hyper focused on helping these horses that were in my program, and and at that time I was taking a lot of quote unquote problem horses and. Every moment, free moment I had, I was out in the barn or in the round pen or in the arena or driving somewhere and essentially became unavailable to to my kids. You know, the one kiddo went to school and then uh, the other one did for a while. They're both now homeschooled. But and when I was home, I was reading about training or I was watching movies about training or YouTube videos or talking about training. And then my husband also started to they started to resent the horse and it was devastating to me to to not only feel that but then to admit to myself that that was happening and that it was because of my actions that was was doing that and had to really wrap my mind or admit it to myself accept it and then wrap my mind around you know not wanting to lose me uh, as a mother and a wife Um, the horses are me, but also then to honor these, the the relationships that I have and these commitments that I have and these beautiful children and amazing husband I have. So I sat down and and started in small steps, just like any change, whether you're in a pattern and you want to change, uh, even when we do it with horses, it's got to be in small uh, achievable steps to make it successful. So I started Letting it go when I was home, you know, not watching videos about training. And I would wait until after the kids went to bed and after I had spent some time with my husband and, you know, making sure that one week in a month was a family time that we went and it didn't have to be horse related because I so badly wanted my kids to want to ride. And I started to realize that the more I tried to get them to ride and the more they resented horses, the more they didn't want to ride.
0: Yeah, you're driving (laughs) them away from it.
1: I was driving. I was totally driving them away from it. And that really hurt too. So I had to accept that it, it was okay that they didn't want to ride and it was okay. And in turn healthy to not do horsey stuff one or two weekends a month. And then I I started to realize as we made I made the shift and they started to, they started to feel the change in me and feel like they got more of me. They became in turn more supportive of the horse because they felt like they were getting, in my horse activities and my showing, that they were getting the time they deserved. And it was was a tough time, you know, when you have strain between the people you love the most and and being torn between the two. Oh, absolutely. It it wasn't wasn't easy.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. And when I think back in my experience, I mean, I've experienced burnout myself. I always use the analogy of the battery, right? I mean, if you don't ever recharge or replace those batteries in your life... Eventually, they're going to run dead and they're not good to anybody. And I found when I took a step back from from what I was diving into and what I was enthralled with that everything else in my life benefited as a result of finding balance, right? My marriage was stronger, right? My family was more committed to me. I was more committed to them. My work habits improved. My sleep, my health, everything turned around once I really started to focus and pay attention to life balance. And like you said, it does not happen overnight, right? You got to start with small attainable goals and just build and develop from there but so many people oftentimes hit that level of obsession and it's ex- especially people who are seeking success right because you see success you want more you see a little bit more you want more than that and uh we become very greedy with it but i think very very often people lose sight of what truly is important because i mean hopefully i'll 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 never live another day on this earth without a horse but when it comes down to it the horses come and go and the family's going to be forever
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, like you said, the battery, I'll like it to a, a you know a, a bank account. If I'm constantly making withdrawals and never depositing anything, I'm going to run it dry.
0: Yeah, and that's what people lose sight of is those deposits are just as important as any of those withdrawals. In fact, they're probably yes. more important, right, to sustain the life of the entity.
1: Absolutely, definitely more important. And I stopped and realized that for me to be able to continue, and, and then there, and like you, you touched on it, the balance of when you get burned out. I mean, it is possible to have something you're so passionate about and driven for to start to be not as desirable when you get burnt out, It becomes are it becomes work, you know, and that saying, love what you do and never work a day in your life. And it's that I, I've always had a hard time with that saying because it is work. Um, there have been times where it, it doesn't have that thrill and the fun and the excitement uh, and, and more so when you become so hyper-focused and you don't give yourself that opportunity to refresh and recoup from what you're doing with your family, it just spirals downwards. And so it's, it's, it's about balance. And with Running Tea Horsemanship, my, my three words are passion, balance, and purpose. I try to balance everything as much as possible, whether it's literally or figuratively, within, within my work and my training and my instruction and within my family.
0: Now, being that you use that as a tagline almost for the business. Yes. What happened in your life for you to formulate that tagline and for those three words to mean so much to you? Can you kind of elaborate on each one of them and, and maybe a life experience that helps you develop that?
1: It's a great question. The passion. So the first word's passion. To be committed to something, there's got to be passion involved. Whether you're passionate about what you're committing to or passionate about what the commitment is going to bring you Afterwards, or in the long run, passion has what's kept me going throughout the is Whether when I lost my mother at 15 and different things throughout my life, and I discovered my biological father when I was 21 and met him for the first time and, and made a move to be closer to him, and throughout this, kept my horses, and then meeting my husband and having children and being a mom, there needs to be passion and, and somebody who exudes and has and possesses passion about anything, whether it's passionate about collecting stamps or riding horses, you know, there's something attractive about a passionate person or someone who possesses passion. And I think the passion is the root of of a lot of success, whether it's financial success and career success or success in a relationship.
0: Yeah, it's very much the catalyst that drives things.
1: Yeah, passion. With passion, I often feel comes commitment, committed to something. And then Balance. I've always tr- tried to be, maintain aware within myself, my life, my job, my family, the balance, whether it's heavy and light, uh, working through that, even the balance in sadness and happiness in my world. I have gone through some things that brought me great sadness, the death of my mom and the loss of friends. And, but without the sadness and without the dark, we can't appreciate or know or feel the light. And that's kind of more of the bigger picture. And then within my training program, um, the balance of practical horsemanship and natural horsemanship, Uh, natural horsemanship, being able to instruct, teach, and work with the horse in the way they can best understand, but also keeping in mind that we are are working with, you know, thousand pound animals with minds of their own. So finding a balance and, and being able to recognize when one needs the other and then having a purpose. I think everyone and every being feels more uh, driven and passionate when they feel like they have a purpose or if they're given a purpose or if there is a reason behind their actions. And I have learned that through working with the Colts, young horses and old horses alike, uh, myself, my son, my children, my daughter, that there's a lot to be said for a purpose.
0: No, absolutely. And I think growing up for me as a student, no matter, you know, whether it was academics or sports or or horses, I'm the annoying student that always has to know why, right? So, (laughs) the, the instructors that basically instruct comparable to a dictator, right? Do this because I say so. I oftentimes frustrate them because I need to know the why. And I think for me, understanding the why is understanding the purpose. When you understand the purpose, you're able to retain the information and understand the bigger picture, right, as to why you're doing what you're doing. So, I think purpose is invaluable, for the simple fact of when you're a student and you're understanding the purpose, I think you can achieve higher levels of success rather than just doing what is said from an instructor. It's almost like like the childhood game, red light, green light, right? You're just doing it because it's being said and you're not understanding why.
1: It, yes. And that's, that is that is my son. I guess we segue into that. So I have a 10-year-old son who was diagnosed with Asperger's or... Uh, ASD. They don't call it Asperger's anymore, but autism spectrum disorder and sensory processing disorder and anxiety. And what all that means is that he's just neurologically wired differently and he lives his life in high definition, hearing things, seeing, smelling, feeling. And and then his when he does get it, all that information, his neurological self processes it differently. And he is one that always needs to know why. There is no amount of success uh, with my son unless he knows he needs to know why. Now, obviously, we've worked on, you know, sometimes there's just things you have to do, even if they don't make sense, because that's kind of what we need to do. But to the best of our ability, we've given him the whys. And that's when things are best done. At school, he had a really hard time for the typical reasons of not being able to sit still, um, being overstimulated, and then shutting down because of the overstimulation but then needing to know why and he would ask often well why are we doing this or why do we need to learn this or what is this for I don't I don't get it and and often he was not given the answers which then only further frustrated him and shut him down more because unless unless he knew why he was doing you know why are we learning these math problems why do we need to know what CH says and sh and th and so that became that became an issue there and and in fact growing up i always thought my son was was a little different and i had never been around little kids a whole lot growing up and i had him when i was 20 23 24 and so i i just thought he was a kid and but i i noticed some differences and it wasn't until second grade when his teacher came to me and you know teachers by law are not supposed to diagnose but it was a small town and it was so significant. She pulled me aside and said, you know, I think your son has Asperger's and I looked it up on the internet and went, Oh oh my gosh, your ass. It explained everything about my child and it was, it was devastating. um, But so such a relief because it explained, it explained why my son was behaving the way he was. And as any parent who, finally has those realizations that your son is different than everyone else. Uh, it was hard to process, but knew that I needed to do what was best for him. So we went forward with diagnosing him and we were hooked up with. And of course, at the same time, you know, I'm one of those that I didn't want to jump on the the autism bandwagon. Like, I hate the hashtag autism mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because labels, you know, I, I was really against labeling. But I also knew that understanding and being aware of w- why he was behaving the way he was and better understanding how he worked would lead to success. So we went forward and, and were hooked up with a great neurological center uh, in Boise, the Northwest Neurobehavior. And he was diagnosed. And it was a grueling five hours. And he would have he was would have meltdowns and we ended up underneath a chair curled up in a ball and rocking and but it was and that was a big part of it too was bringing him realizing all of this, I guess where I'm going with that is we'd go into public and I realized one day I was that mom. I had the kid that was curled up in the ball on the floor with his hands over his ears, rocking and crying and and I didn't know why, and I wondered what I was doing wrong or or what was going on and people would walk by and roll their eyes and I totally got it because before I had kids I was not a kid person Mm -hmm. and I would be that person in the store I was that person in the store before going oh from crying could you shut that kid up oh my god he's so spoiled what is wrong with that child god can't, can't mother do anything about it and I can vividly really remember the day that I picked him up off the ground and he was still small enough that I could do this and threw him over my shoulder, kicking and screaming and crying and, and begging, begging me for things to stop and not knowing what needed to stop and walking out the door and people just and leaving my grocery basket there and people rolling their eyes and scoffing. And that was a big moment for me. And this kind of all came during the realization that something was a little different And now I understand it's because he was overwhelmed. He didn't know how to tell me how he felt. And because, and he, you know, he can hear the vibrations of the lights above him and all the people talking and the carts rolling and their wheels screeching on the ground. And so now it makes sense. But at the time it was just, it, it, it didn't. And I felt so lost and frustrated and judged and just wanted my kid to be normal and then had mom guilt for wishing my kid was just normal. But after we got our diagnosis, uh, we were able, you know, I did tons of research. I became obsessed with understanding my son and that passion and that drive drove me to figure out how I could help him navigate this world to be happy and healthy and then to eventually be a, you know, a working, functioning, successful uh, adult. And it all started now. And so I went to school with him every day in second grade because they we didn't have the official diagnosis and the school agreed to have me be his tutor. So we went to school every day. And I sat there and I just took the time to explain the whys and slowed everything down for him into little bite-sized pieces. And throughout all of this, what kept me sane was my horses, uh, that the horses then there was a shift. This was uh, a handful. He's eight now. So 10, nine, eight, seven, so five years ago that's when my horses were my, my solace and kept me sane so that I could be there for him. And they also, and I always say that being a horse trainer has made me a better mom and being a mom has made me a better horse trainer. And I think I shared with you previously about, you know, there'd be times where I'd be going really fast and I would be vibrating and would be putting his seatbelt on in his car seat. And he'd grab my hand and look at me and say, mommy, slow down.
0: I think it's such a blessing, truly.
1: It it is. Mommy slow down. Why are you going so fast? Please slow down. And I those words stayed with me and I hear them echoing often when I'm I'm working with horses and and children with autism. You know, the, of course the spectrum is so big and that's something else too. As you say the word autism and people immediately will project what they think autism is, whether you know it's somebody who's can't function or feed themselves and is flapping their hands or whatever they've been led to think.
0: It's incredible because obviously it, it runs in my family as well. We have a lot of personal experience with it. So your story definitely resonates with me. And I, and I think back in, in you telling a story and talking about your son living life in high de- definition and being overwhelmed with all the sensory input. For those who don't know or those who aren't educated to the fact, the easiest way to kind of comprehend this is, and, and since most of us are horse people, you can all think, and correct me if any of this is wrong. We can all think of the time where we've been loading up for a show, for a trip, for a run, right? And we're getting the trailer together and we're throwing horses and shavings and saddles and ropes and trying to go through that mental checklist. And we get going so fast that we don't know that we're getting anything done, right? We're just so scatterbrained and overwhelmed and can't comprehend anything that we're truly doing that if we just took a step back, right, took a deep breath and tried a different angle. I mean, that's how these kids live their lives every single day with almost every single social social environment. And the tough part about it is, is, like you said, it is a spectrum for a reason, right? There's those that are severely impacted and those that aren't as much, but your body can only take in so much at, at any given time. They're doing it basically out of hypersensitivity, and yet none of us, being the rest of the world, are compassionate enough to to help them through the process as far as you know, common society. We just look at it and kind of ostracize it as, well, well, they are different. Yeah, you're right. They are different. But every single one of us has got a tick, right? There just happens to be Asperger's.
1: Right. And, and that's, I like it to, I'll explain to people, horse people, my son is, is a lot like a colt. You have, there's a big connection between the fight or flight, the instinctual fight or flight um, in the sensitive uh, sensory processing disorder aspect of, of the kids and a colt. And so they, when they're, you know, have you, you work a horse, how many times have you heard when you work a colt or a young horse at home and they're pretty relaxed? It's a, a familiar environment, familiar behaviors, you know, from their handler, smells, sight. Uh, they might have a moment and then you work through it because of the, the tools you've taught and the body control and the self-regulation. And, and then you take your colt to your friends indoor, or even to a show to stand tight at the trailer. And I know a lot of people have heard this, well, he's never acted like that before. Gosh, he's so much better at home.
0: Yeah, because it's familiar. It's comfortable.
1: (laughs) And when you get out of that environment, they see all the new things. They're smelling the different smells. They're feeling the different feels and and your different energy because you're in a new environment and things aren't what was familiar. So they're heightened. And they might behave in a way that's undesirable because of this. And I've found the connection between the two where it's my job to teach these coping skills at home and introduce then the environment outside of home in a successful way.
0: Yeah, the stimulus.
1: The stimulus so that they can then utilize, and and then you are the constant and utilize those coping skills and that's what we do with horses. And eventually we show them that there can be consistency. You fall back on that one thing they know, that one coping skill you taught them, or that one exercise that you do where you move their parts around in a certain order, and then you can bring them back to you. And I do the same thing with my son. When we get into, it's not as bad now, but in the beginning, we get into a new environment and he'd be vibrating, what I what I call vibrating on a high level and and looking around and darting back and forth, or he might say something out of nowhere and i realized that i had to he couldn't just learn how to be in that environment by being thrown into it he'd either shut down which we've all seen horses do right when you when they get overstimulated they shut down
0: they run to a place of comfort right which yeah. which engages that flight aspect of their instinct right?
1: and and either and if they can't get away from the stimulus they go within themselves and that was him and when and when a horse or a child or human go within themselves they can't learn because they're in there and they're not engaged and they're not processing. So people would tell me, oh, well, you can't homeschool him because how is he going to learn to engage? Well, when he was at school, he was so within himself and shut down. He wasn't even if he could, he wasn't absorbing the learning of, of being social. There was nothing being absorbed academically, socially, because he was just in there. He was just overwhelmed. And just trying to get away from it all. No. So the same thing with a cult. I've had cults where, you know, if they get so overwhelmed, they're not processing or learning anymore. They seemingly so to us, you know, oh look how quiet he's being. He's just standing there. I can flag him and he's fine. Well, he's gone within himself, so he's no longer processing or and he's not even with you. He's not even with you. He's not even not even in the moment. And so I I actually found it easier to cope with my son and his needs as a mother and to make sense of it by connecting it with with my horsemanship and and finding the similarities and it gave me confidence because I know how to work a horse I can do that Ooh, me pick me I don't know how to mother a child with autism that's melting down and and freaking out so that's where I I used the horses you know I, I realized where my was my driving force and what gave me some confidence in going forward and then in reading and researching and learning but it was very similar so I've taught my son has been homeschooling and we've had people that have noticed the differences in him because here we can practice those coping skills. We can do role play. We can talk about it because he's really good at comprehending. He has, a, you know, in his own way, a high IQ in that sense. And we can discuss how people feel when you say things like that or do things like that, or also talking about, okay, when you, what are the first things you feel when you're starting to feel overwhelmed? What, what do you feel physically, the butterflies in your belly or things maybe start to vibrate, you know, visually. And then when you start to feel that, what do you need to do? So by doing that in this environment, and I take him to gatherings with friends and my friends who are educated because they've chatted with me and, and they're supportive then can help him through. And then eventually now we can go out into big environments to the county fair or to the fall festival and he can regulate himself because he's now has those coping skills.
0: I think it's incredible listening to you explain everything and how it ties back to the horse and horsemanship and stuff like that. And the one blessing I think that has come from all of this is just, I think of awareness. Right, your own yes. awareness of where you're at, where he's at, where your horsemanship's at, and absolutely how the two feet off off of each other, you know when you that is horsemanship, right As a human being aware of where the horse is at mentally because if you can if you can stay with the horse mentally physically, there's pretty much nothing you can't achieve right and and I think it's absolutely applicable in the situation with your son and having a higher level of awareness of him and his responses and his reactions, and then breaking those down to those manageable steps that we talked about. I mean, how empowering is that for him? And you talk about, you know, everybody seeing the growth in him and, and then him fostering a higher level of awareness in himself and being able to grow and develop these coping skills that you talk about.
1: Yes. And it was, that was a big turning point in my own horsemanship. And I, about the same time, I started playing with, with Liberty work and getting through to the Colts. I was starting through more utilizing more of the, the mental connection. And I found that by getting to their brain, that I got to their body and that it was more solidified. And, and it was the same way with my son, Tripp. You know, sure, I could pick him up and set him down in a seat and sit on him or put him there in frustration and, and move his body. But unless I had his mind, you know, that wasn't always gonna be successful. When push come to shove, I didn't have his body. When the stimulus was too high and it was too much, I didn't have his body. He'd get up and run away.
0: Yeah, and it all goes back to purpose, right?
1: Yeah, it all goes back to purpose. And so by explaining to him, well, first of all, helping him recognize his feelings and giving him those coping skills. And then explaining to him why we don't just take off running through the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, then it became... It was easier to then work through those moments. And then, you know, and that's when I started working with the horses more, when I had the realization, if if I can get through to their mind, I'll be more successful. And, And in the long run, it'll be solidified when I get through to their body. And then in turn, you have a safer horse and a more successful and more enjoyable relationship with your horse. And the same thing with my son.
0: Yeah, and you got to take a huge step back as an individual, right? Because you have to go to places mentally that you haven't gone before, right? Think about it from perspectives that you wouldn't even consider, right? Or challenges you wouldn't even consider now become everyday challenges, not only for the young horses, but for your son. So, I mean, kudos to you for even having the the foresight or being willing to to try to find the answer because so many people get frustrated, right? They don't have the answer. It's not easily accessible. So they themselves shut down and then no, nobody benefits from it.
1: Nobody. And yeah, and there was moments and, and I actually found that trying to seek help through like local experts didn't bring it any success at all. I literally was handed by our local uh, autism expert, was handed a pamphlet, my, uh, and it was, it was labeled, my child has autism. She said, here you go. She looked at me in the eyes and said, uh, what drugs would you like to put them on?
0: Oh my God. Are you kidding me?
1: I, that was exactly how it went. I was so floored and and couldn't even, it was just, and and that's that moment was big pivotal point. I was like, okay, there's gotta be.
0: Yeah. We ain't doing that. Here we go.
1: You know, and obviously, and I'm open-minded, there's a balance there. There are times where medication is going to help everybody and keep everybody happy and safe. But I knew that in my case, If he went around in a fog now, how was he going to learn how to cope when he was an adult?
0: And this is a whole different conversation for another day. But I think oftentimes medicine is just used to mask things, right? If we can just put enough of a blanket on it to where it's not an issue, then we can get to our next patient and our next patient and our next patient. Rather than like you have done, right? Really, really, really peeling back those layers and starting at square one. And the road that you're going to travel is going to be far more exhausting. It's going to be far tougher on yourself and your family but the impact that you're gonna leave is far more successful than just doping doping them up. Just
1: doping them, yes. Yeah. And with that being said, I certainly don't disregard other families in their journey. You know, in the moment, people are only doing what they can do. But I know that for my case, and then there came the big, the exception. I had to accept that our journey was the one we that I was gonna take because I had a lot of doubters and that I knew to trust myself and to know that it was okay to not be where everybody else was, that it was okay that my son wasn't reading at quote unquote you know grade level, that it was okay that we were doing what we were doing, and to own it and go forth and and be, and, and be confident in it, and that was that was a big thing. And you went back. I wanted to talk about the the awareness and how my son has taught me to be aware of of my words, because he's very literal. If anybody who, who deals with yes. Asperger's knows that there's that literal aspect, that very black and white. Now he's learned to, I've, I've taught him how to joke and how to be a little more flexible, <laughs> but it took a long time. And to be aware of my words, to be aware of what I project, and it's what created what I call my conscious horsemanship part of my program, whereas you get what you project, whether it's y- your thoughts, your energy and, and understanding how even just your energy and your body language affects those around you.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I had Jonathan Field on uh, last week and he talks about working with a horse to a level of your intent is what drives that horse. And like, if you think about it, truly step back and think about it. I mean, you are so in tune with your horse that your intent alone is able to move that horse around, right? Rate, speed's, pick up different gates. Now you're really, really, really starting to get to a different level of awareness and a different level of professionalism and success. And it's incredible to chase that dream.
1: Absolutely. And that's been a big chunk of my recent journey myself is being aware of that and applying that and understanding that through my horsemanship and through, and not just my son, but the people around me. And, the, and, and as an instructor, not just the horses, but in my personal relationships and instructing the people that come to me to further their horsemanship and understanding the intent and your energy. And, you know, just as much my son will come up to me. I won't be showing outward signs of, of being stressed. I might have an internal storm. I'm stressing about this or that or the other and vibrating on the inside and swirling and just really frustrated but not showing it outwardly and he'll come up to me and he'll sit down and he'll touch my arm or rub my shoulders or grab my hand and say mommy what's wrong? Nothing's wrong, son. We're okay. Well, no, no mommy, you you feel different. You're not happy. You're you're or you're sad. What what what's wrong? And to realize that just that alone was affecting him and he could feel it goes back to that awareness.
0: Yeah. What a what a different level of Of emotional state you have to be in, right? Or emotional awareness.
1: Yes. And and to then create your own coping skills to let it go. And that's helped me in in my own horsemanship and and being a competitor. Because how often do we hear, oh gosh, we we school at home like rock stars. If the show was at home, you know, we'd, I'm great because you're relaxed and you're happy and you're focused and you're connected. And then you go to the show ring and I, I think that often even the best of them get butterflies. Or oh, it some... goes back to
0: performance anxiety, right? You yeah. got to have a healthy level of it, but oftentimes it becomes overwhelming.
1: Yes. And and then being able to create coping skills and things that you can do to at least alleviate some of that has helped me become a better performer, a better competitor and a better instructor. Because, you know, when you get in front of eight people at a clinic and they're all there to hear from you.
0: Yeah, you're the expert now.
1: (laughs) And and learning how to channel those, those feelings and that anxiety or those emotions and to bring in and open up and be confident in what you are feeling and what you do know. And knowing that by doing that sets you up for success.
0: I ride with a mentor out in Texas and when he puts on clinics and stuff, he often spends the the lion's share of the morning, you know, at least an hour or two just sitting down and talking with the participants and and talking about horses and stuff like that. And I think it's funny because a lot of people you see want to just saddle up and get right to work. And at first they're kind of wondering, hey, why are we sitting here talking? We should be riding, we should be doing A, B, C, and D. And when you look at it from a from an athletic performance standpoint, I mean, there's an absolute function to all of it. There's a reason why you sit and talk for an hour or two, because you're so spun up as a participant from this performance anxiety that you're not going to be able to learn if you were on horseback, right? So he spends that first hour or so just kind of the act of talking and talking through things kind of starts to break down those barriers, calm those nerves. And then when you actually get to the saddled portion of the the clinics, you're able to comprehend a lot more and, and move forward at a at a far more successful rate than if you were to just jump right into it right out the gate, you know?
1: Absolutely. Bring it to de-escalate everybody. Uses yeah. those two hours to de-escalate. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and just be, and that's so important. And Absolutely. it affects performance.
0: So Dana, we've had many conversations previously, and in prior conversations, you mentioned this concept of respond versus react as far as a life lesson that you've kind of learned throughout your horsemanship and the development of your program. So, if you don't mind, kind of explaining to people where this respond versus react mantra came from and how you deploy it in in your life and everyday horsemanship and and with your family.
1: You know, it it really hit me understanding the difference between responding and reacting as I got deeper in my relationship w- with my son. And, you know, I, I realized later that I had been utilizing the thought and requesting and looking for a response instead of a reaction in my horsemanship. But I don't think I was ever fully aware or grasped um, in previous years the importance of that and, and being consistent with seeking that response instead of reaction. And and when I started to work with my son more and we we got into Moments when where we would escalate and looking for a response from him, I also realized that I needed to be consistent with my responses and react less because by me reacting, I became untrustworthy. And if I responded to a, a situation, an escalation, whether it was small or big, I became trustworthy. And then also found that if i if I did react and slip, if I then followed up with a response. So, For instance, you know, if my my son pushes me over a point and we've all been there, if you're a parent or, you know, in any relationship and you just kind of blow up, whether you yell or storm out or slam a door, I reacted and and really I should have responded. And I would follow that reaction with the response of apologizing and recognizing how I could have changed my actions and what I would try to do next time. But as a whole, I do try to respond And this is in in doing so, you know, realizing that by being consistent in those responses and a response and the difference being, so a response is a thoughtful, deliberate action and a reaction is based solely off of, you know, knee jerk. It's emotional. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's what I've been teaching my son. And as I have translated to horsemanship, I've realized that I look for a response. So, you know, when I ask for a horse to to yield its hip on the ground, just because it's moving away from me and it's stepping its inside hind underneath me, that doesn't necessarily mean they're responding. You know, I, I look for if they're just flying away from me, they're reacting. They're just trying to get away from me. They're not truly responding to what I have asked with softness and with purpose. I've started to realize that I wanted to reward that response. And in my horses, if I can create the trained response within my horsemanship that the horse in a moment of pressure, whether small or large, can respond instead of react, that you get a happier, more successful relationship.
0: I think it's absolutely incredible And looking back on it because if you look at the reaction portion of it, I mean, that's easy, right? We're all hardwired. We're all emotional. We can all fly off the handle. When faced with any adversity or challenge, or or negative situation, but to respond, I mean, now you have to take a step back, right? You have to metabolize everything that's coming in. You have to think, formulate a plan, and deliver that plan. And, and with the response side of it, I think, not only in life, but in horsemanship as well, you're going to be a lot more fair, right?
1: Yes. And, and it, it goes to being aware, too. It, it goes hand in hand, being self-aware of, of how you're feeling, how you're about to respond to those feelings. And taking a moment to channel them in in a successful way.
0: Yeah, and if you think about the emotion of trust, right, or the feeling of trust, whether it's between you and another human being or you and a horse, it's oftentimes very difficult, or it takes quite a long time to achieve trust. Yet one fleeting reaction could topple that wall in a hurry, right, or topple that building, or any progress that you make in a hurry. And now you have to rebuild that trust and. No matter how hard you try to rebuild it, it's always going to be in the back of that person's mind, right? That reaction that caused the the fall. Whereas if you respond, it's going to take a little bit more discipline on your part and maybe a little bit more patience on your part. But I don't see where it would affect the trust relationship nearly as much in a negative way, if any at all.
1: Absolutely. And by responding more and creating that trust, then you have a better connection with another person or a horse. Or a dog, <laughs> or whatever you're working with, and have a working relationship.
0: So, Dana, we're coming up on an hour here, uh, just short of an hour. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I think you've offered an incredible inside perspective on dealing with adversities and challenges, and and how you can take you can take what seems to be a negative situation, and how much positive growth has come of it. I mean, I think it's absolutely incredible. And if you look back on this episode, right, when we first started talking about your son and his diagnosis, it was a little emotional for you. But in listening to all the success that you guys have achieved since then, I mean, to me, it's truly inspiring. My family member is now college educated, right? He's out there living life. So... I can kind of see the other end of it and I truly do have a, a huge personal respect for your your situation and all the effort that you put forward. Well, thank you. So in closing, I like to give a lot of our guests a chance to kind of sell themselves. I know you run Running Tea Horsemanship up there. If you want to kind of build on what your program is all about, let's say I come to you as a client, first-time client. Dana, how are you going to help me?
1: When I meet somebody new and whether it's just the individual or they want to work with their horse... I like to look at the big picture and ask them, what are your goals? Why are you coming to me? What do you want to achieve within yourself and your horsemanship and, and or with your horse? And then I will often evaluate them and their horse, either together or individually. And then we make a plan. I've developed a reputation for being compassionate, but honest and uh, helping the person find success and also helping them realize whether or not it's in line with reality. And how to best reach those goals and help make a plan. And then we'll we go from there. So whether it's, you know, just bettering their their horsemanship and, and playing with their backyard pony, because you know, their journey is really just about wanting to be the best horseman and have the best connection, or whether it's somebody who wants to go on and, and compete, um, or the queen that wants to to Ride better, and so here at running Tea, my big goal is to understand what the client wants from their relationship with me, and then we talk it through and to make sure that I'm a good fit because that's so important to me too, is that the person is is getting something from from me and my program you know i I might have all of this knowledge, but if the way I teach or how we communicate doesn't resonate and they're not getting something from it, then I might help them you know, find another trainer that would better suit what they're looking for. That's something that I take pride in and that I want to make sure that our our time together is going to be best used and that we're going to create a successful relationship in the end. And then with my equine program, uh, I like to evaluate horses. I have them bring the horse over and we Put them through, you know, through the steps. I usually start at Liberty in the round pen and just get a feel for how the horse reacts. And this is from anything from a colt to I've had $50,000 barrel horses come. And no matter what it is, I put them in the round pen and just kind of introduce myself to the horse and get an idea for how they handle pressure, what their first response is, if they're more on the, the fight or flight side of things, and then make, make a plan to reach the, the owner's goals and do it in a way that also best meets the horse's needs.
0: That's good. It definitely goes back to the balance side of things, right?
1: Yes, yes. Because there's, you know, the, the horses have needs and I, I want to honor my program and, and my integrity and, and the horse. You know, and at the end of the day, it's the horse. And how we can do that, how can we get that done? But also, you know, are the, the owner's uh, goals and what they want to do in line with all of that and helping them to understand how we can reach those goals in a way that honors everybody.
0: How can people get a hold of you? You have websites, social media pages, if you want to kind of explain that.
1: So I can, I'm on Facebook more often than not right now at running T horsemanship, Dana Lovell. And if you put that in the search bar, that will come up. Uh, The website will be, it's uh, in the works right now and should be going live in the next couple months. And that is uh, www.runningthorsemanship.com. but that is not up and running yet.
0: Perfect. And and the way I like to close every episode is give our guests the opportunity to kind of express some final thoughts or final words or life motto to live by in in summary of their our conversation and time together.
1: Oh my! <laughs> I would you know that final words are just passion, balance, purpose, and awareness. I've learned and I have found that I have grown as an individual and my horsemanship has grown by being aware of my own actions and body language and intention and learning to recognize and be aware of the horse or the other person I'm interacting with. And and by doing so, I have found that I've made uh, better connections and relationships within my horsemanship and the people I work with.
0: Well, Dana, again, we thank you very much for your time on the show here. I know you have a very busy schedule. We look forward to many more conversations with you. I know you got tons of more story to tell, but we wish you the best going into the new year and hopefully we can get you on sooner than later.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And it's been an honor to be able to to share with you and, and your listeners.
0: Thanks, Dana. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Rain Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.